get this. Just get ready to laugh. So maybe stop drinking the, the water or, or tea. I'm not drinking any water. But yeah, I don't want it to shit out my nose. Okay, so clear your mouth of any liquids because you probably like spit everywhere. Have you have you ever had that happen to you? What? Like you've laughed while you're drinking something that shot out of your nose. No, I've, I've spat it out. I haven't had it shot out, shoot out my nose. That's happened to me. Cool. I know. Too much hilarity for all concerned. Actually, stuff goes up my nose kind of regularly if I laugh, unfortunately. Like once there was a <laughs> bean that went up my nose. The bean went up your nose. Or I, could, I swallowed it and it went up my nose instead of going down because I laughed or something. So. And then it came out your nose. Yeah, it came out my nose. That's insane. Yeah. And uh, whenever I throw up, <laughs> that also comes out my nose too. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> so... Well, it's not. It's not every. It's not every time. I... And when you throw up, it sounds something like this. Yeah, it's a sound effect. Yeah. Anyway, um, that's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, it's like the worst. Not only do I have to deal with like tasting throw up, right, and smelling it just normally, but even after I go flush the toilet or get rid of the throw up in another way, it's still lingering. The scent is still lingering in my nostrils. <laughs> So. Wait, this is gonna be something wrong in in the wiring, right? <laughs> That's not nice. In the pipes. Why don't you Why don't you fuck yourself? That happens. It's a normal thing, or semi. It's not a normal thing. It is a semi. No, I'm, I mean, I'm serious. It's not like a It's not like a criticism of your character. It's saying there's something physiologically ajar. Why don't you go fuck yourself? It's Wait, then why are you taking offense at that? I, I'm concerned about your health. Yeah. Right. <laughs> This is a very special episode of Project A+. Yes, one that breaks our non-existent format. Yeah, starring me, Hugh, and you. Hunter. Yes, correct. Uh, okay, so what are we going to do on this podcast? Uh, you have an amazing anecdote. Oh, yeah. Even though you've already treated us to the vomiting out your nose story. <laughs> okay, um, so should I tell my fascinating story? Yes, please. Um, so... Last night, I went to the movies with my friend Anthony, a movie that I will talk about later in the show when we get to bonus features called uh, Long Day's Journey at Night. We had some time to kill before the movie, so we went to a bar where we went, where, um, well, first we went and got uh, $3. It was kind of like the Chinese version of your, your dollar pizza, which was $3 for 10 dumplings. Wow, that's good. Yeah. Um, but I doubt it'd be something that you'd be that into because they were all pork dumplings. Hmm. But I don't know. Maybe they had a vegetarian option. But regardless, so we went and got dumplings, and then Anthony, my friend, wanted to go to a bar. So we went to this bar, which uh, incidentally, in a little sidebar to the story, um, hmm? played like all sorts of weird punk videos, right? Uh, including at one point a selection of um, <laughs> little person porn. <laughs> so that was a good time I did not drink a beer because I was very tired because I had worked on it my friend Anthony like you and apparently like the majority of my friends did not have a job <laughs> but unlike you he is going to uh, the NYU doctoral program yeah, next semester so he has something ahead of him <laughs> 
I have a rich life behind me. I just want to say that. Yeah. Okay. 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 <laughs> this is like your, yeah, you're in your uh, autumn years. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly. Um. So but anyway, so we watched the midget porn. It was pretty gross. So a lot of like you know when you watch porn, and it's no. just like a close up of you've watched porn before though. No. I don't believe you. <laughs> Keep going. Never in your entire life. Keep going. <laughs> But it's it's like literally just the most disgusting shots where it's just a, a, a image of a penis going inside of a vagina, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a close-up on that specific action. It's just that for like 30 minutes. So it just gets boring after a while, you know? And that doesn't really give you a sense of scale, does it? No, it doesn't. So it kind of defeats the whole purpose. Yeah, exactly. Um, but Anthony bought a $3 PBR. And I bought nothing because I was tired because I had worked all day. And if I drink like one beer, it makes me like pass out. It just makes me really tired. I had to drink a decent amount and that's to be regular, right? Yeah. We're going to get to see this long movie too. So I thought it'd be a little bit too. It didn't matter. I did manage to fall asleep during the movie anyway. <laughs> so, and I even had coffee beforehand. But that may be to the quality of the film. But we're not talking about the film right now. We're talking about what happened before it. So we left this punk bar. And we're like, we have another hour or so to kill. Let's go to this uh, card slash game shop, okay? Yeah. Called Zeno Zero, okay? So we walk down um, to the block where Google Maps tells us it is, and we walk outside the building where Google Maps tells us where it is, and it's not there. So we're like, okay, obviously it's got to be somewhere on this block. So we walk around the block two times. We don't see it anywhere. Uh, And we're like, maybe it's closed. Maybe it's shut down and just Google Maps updated their stuff or, you know, whatever. So we go on their Facebook page. Looks like looks like they're hosting an event for uh, that's coming up in the next month or so. And it's like okay, so obviously this place exists, and Facebook says that they're open. But again, that could be lost. But they have a number there. So Anthony is like, okay, let's give this number a call. Um, and uh, he talks to this guy, and the guy's like, oh yes, to get up to the thing, it's on the second floor. You have to go to this doorway and then hit this black buzzer, right? Yeah. It's a little strange, but, you know, whatever. We want to go to this card shop. We, we're so invested at this point. Uh, we already wasted so much time looking for this thing that we were going to go through this procedure. So Anthony presses the black button. We wait a bit. The door doesn't open. And it's like, what's happening? And we press it again, and nothing happens. And then it was like, well, let's get out of here. So he left. <laughs> and that's my story. Oh, and then something else funny happens. So we walk to the theater. There's a bunch of there's a big crowd outside. And we're like, well, that was a really strange thing. Maybe someone's following us. You know, it's like sort of that sort of jokey atmosphere. And then um, we noticed that across the street from the movie theater, there's this uh, East Asian guy wearing a black Uniqlo, like, um, coat, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a little strange already because it was pretty warm out yesterday. Um, and he had a chin strap beard, okay? <laughs> and he was just staring <laughs> into the movie theater. <laughs> And we would look up, we'd wait a couple minutes, so he'd, look up, he'd still be there just staring at the movie theater. <laughs> and then I looked up and then he was just gone. He just vanished, right? Hmm. So we were like, okay, we're going to get shot. <laughs> so that was the conclusion that we came to from that encounter. Um, so we went and, and sat, waited, we're waiting for the movie. And then <laughs> I was like, well, at least, you know, we're not sitting that far up the front. Because I feel like if a, if someone comes and shoots up a theater, the first group they're going to shoot is the people at the front, right? Yeah. And then Anthony was like, no, I actually think it's the opposite. I think they should go for the back. 
then, and then he was like, wouldn't it be really funny if the entire theater went quiet now and it was just people listening to us talking about the way in which we'd kill all the people in this theater? <laughs> so that was a good time. And then uh, in the movie that we saw, there's a scene where someone assassinates someone else in a movie theater. So, you know. So that's my story. Good story. Uh, well, do you have any fun stories to tell? Hmm. <laughs> Is that it? I'm trying to think if anything happened. <laughs> At all? At all. That's a little sad. Okay. Uh, so... Whoa, four movies today. Four movies? Wait, wait, what? Wait, 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 wait. Uh, hold it. Uh, we usually uh, do uh, two uh, movies. What's going on? Yeah, we do. But this one, it's different. In that, instead of doing... Two movies. Two movies. We each assign each other one movie to watch. Well, that only makes two. Which is reminiscent of a failed podcast... Uh, idea that we had and tried to do for two or three times. Yeah, it'll never be released publicly unless you sign up to our Patreon and then it's like a bonus. Yeah, yeah. And then you get our full archive of garbage. <laughs> All including, the Josh Radner episodes. The 17 Again tapes. <laughs> the fabled 17 Again tapes. <laughs> Which I, I don't actually have anymore. Uh, so. Me either. <laughs> so um, we not only signed each other, we signed each other uh, a movie to watch. Uh, it started where I was. You had noticed that the movie "Wife Is Beautiful" was available on a streaming service. Is that right? Yes. And I don't know if that's how this started. I think you just spitefully assigned it to me. Yes. Well, but I knew that it was available to you for you to watch. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So uh, I knew that fact, and I was like, I want you to watch "Wife Is Beautiful," and you're like, Okay, I will do that if you watch the movie Captain Fantastic. Two movies that both of us sort of assumed that the either person would not like. You based yeah. on intuition, me based on uh, having watched it three or four times. Yep. Uh, three or four times? Jesus. Yeah, told, we've, talked about, we've talked about this. You studied it, didn't you? Yeah, I did, in multiple classes. I didn't realize you had, like, actually... I knew you had, I, knew, I remember you had to study it, but I didn't realize you had to actually watch it more than once. Yeah, and in multiple classes in four. God. I would have just walked out of the class for two hours. Well, I mean, the first time I when I saw it, I was still in high school, so I didn't realize what it was about. Yeah. So I couldn't. I couldn't have had that foreknowledge. I wasn't that into as into film as I am now. And you can't really w- walk out of high school like you can out of university or something. And when I was in college, I wanted to specifically watch it so I could spitefully declaim it in front of my all my classmates who all loved it. <laughs> really? Yeah. In fact, we did a. Um, at the end of the semester, it was an Italian film and literature class. We did a, uh, we ranked the movies that we had watched, right? Mm-hmm. And guess which one was at the top? Life is Beautiful? Yep. Jesus. What was the, what was the competition? Like Eight and a Half and uh, Rome? We didn't watch Eight and a Half. We watched La Strada and um, a Bernardo Budolici film called The Spider's Stratagem and um, The Gospel According to St. Matthew, which is a Pasolini film and... Um, we watched uh, Rome Open, Rome Open City, and and then uh, sitting above all them is, of course, yeah, life is life beautiful. Is beautiful. Um, mm. And then Captain Fantastic, uh, we've talked about it a, a bit, I think, which <laughs> <laughs> um, I I assume you aside to me because you know that I hate uh, quirky independent movies. This seems slightly different by virtue of the fact that it got 
slightly more credible buzz than some of the other comparable films. The Unicorn Store. Yeah. Well, like, it, it was sort of being treated as if it was a more elevated type of film than even then something like Little Miss Sunshine. Yes. Which obviously got good critical notices. It did. But in a different kind of way. It's more, it was more of a drama than, say, the yeah. Or it's treated more like a serious movie as opposed to like a comedy. And in my mind, that would probably make the uh, formula even more insufferable. So hopefully that was the case. Um, so, but to balance this out, because, you know, again, we had tried this format before where we made each other watch terrible movies and it didn't really work out that well. We figured nope. we'd supplement that sort of thin content with uh, also assigning each other two movies that we thought the other person would like. Or one movie, rather. We thought the other person would like. So, I uh, assigned you to watch To Sleep With Anger, Charles Burnett's 1993? No, no, it was in the 90s, but it was 1990, in fact. Okay, To Sleep With Anger. And then you assigned me uh, Edward Yang's debut film, or no, sorry, second film. Second film, uh, yeah. Type That's the mistake I made when I talked about it. (laughs) Yeah, and then I lectured you. Yeah. Would you rather do the good movies or the bad movies first? Let's do the bad first, and then the good. Okay. Uh, why don't we flip a coin? I don't have a coin. Because I actually disagree. I think it would be better to do the good movies first. Well, it's, I, I don't care enough to argue. Let's just do the good movies first, then. No, no. Let's flip a coin. No, I don't care. Let's do the good no, no, movies let's first. No, flip a coin. I'm siding with you. <laughs> okay. Okay, so heads will do the good movies first. Tails will do the bad Fine. movies first. <laughs> Fine. Okay, it's a heads. So we're going to do the good movies first. You could have just said anything. I can't, I can't witness the coin toss. I didn't even use a real coin, I just put it on one of those websites. <laughs> Wait, can we like link into the same coin toss? That there must be a website that allows you to do no, that. I'm sure there is one, but but that's that's what I did. I did it. It's too eight. Okay. Alright. What are we starting with? Good films or bad films? Good films. There okay. once was a man from Taipei. His name was Edward Yang. He had story about Taipei. And made it into a movie story called Taipei Story. There once was a man called Charles Burnett. He had a story about anger. And how to sleep with it. And he turned his story into a movie story called To Sleep With Anger. So, uh, Taipei Story. Yeah, this is his debut film. Wait, uh, wait, wait. Follows... Before you go into it, should we, should we rationalize why we assigned the... Why we thought the other person might like it? Yeah, uh, sure. Because I don't really have a good reason. I was just like, I. we were we were, we were talking about it. And I was like, well, I liked it. I don't know if you'd <laughs> like it, but I know it's a good person. That's how, that's how I did with yours, right? Uh, except I haven't seen it. So I, I was like, I think I'd like this. Which, which <laughs> funny, which, which, what is funny is that you had seen one, the good movie that you assigned me. And I had seen the bad movie that I assigned you. Yeah. So I think that shows our uh, our uh, personality difference. <laughs> where I'm more of a sadist and you're more of a, someone who likes to help people make them feel good. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. A good person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Taipei story follows, um, this, uh, man and woman who are in a relationship, um, who buy a house together and sort of are, uh, planning to make the relationship more, they're like on the brink of marriage, let's say, but they're not quite there yet. Um, and they both sort of have infidelities, infidelities with each other, um, various hangups and stuff. Um, they're not even really in a proper relationship. It's kind of a weird state that they're in. 
But I was, I was kind of just like, is this just the norm in Taiwan? And I just am not, you know, like, am I applying like Western expectations of relationships to it's obviously this non-Western thing, but no, like I, like from what I read about it, they seem to say it's, it's kind of weird. Like they were childhood sweethearts, I think is the implication. Well, but n- no, cause he was sweethearts with the other girl, right? They've known each other since they were kids. Yeah. 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 Um, so they've, they've got like history together yes. and they, they're sort of done relationship stuff, but they're, they're, it's kind of a weird limbo. Yeah. Um, they're in. But they move in together. That's sort of like the inciting incident. Uh, just sort of follows their relationship through its ups and its downs. Um, she's sort of this uh, uh, high, not high powered, like a, she works for this large company that's in architecture, right? It's like an architecture firm. Uh, from memory, something like that. Yeah. And um, capitalism. Yeah, capitalism. <laughs> she works for capitalism. <laughs> uh, and he runs a textile shop. And there's sort of, there's a, a split between those sort of um, uh, evidence by that where the, the where it's a fabric shop. They make a point of like being like, it's a fabric shop, not a textile shop. So, but the sort of um, provincial uh, small time uh, implication of having a fabric shop versus like the, you know, uh, more faceless uh, uh, modern uh, version of, of business that the, the female character is wrapped up in um, sort of. Uh, demonstrates a break between their personalities as well, where the man is uh, sort of obsessed with the past, and specifically his um, uh, past as a little league baseball player, <laughs> um, which is why I, I, earlier I said I asked you if uh, you thought that Taipei story was um, uh, Edward Yang's version of Married with Children, because obviously the central character dynamic in Married with Children, <laughs> how he is obsessed with his uh, football days, so. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I watched that occasionally, but I didn't learn that particular bit of lore um, from watching it. But when you when you said, is this the Al Bundy story? Uh-huh. Um, in my head, I switched up with Ted Bundy. That was what <laughs> I was thinking of. It's really okay. funny. Interesting interpretation. <laughs> but anyway. I don't think the main character is a psychopath or a serial killer, is what I'm saying. Yeah. That's that. <laughs> and I was like, did I miss something that I watched? <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Um, but I was referring to the fact that his, his, he is obsessed with the, his past as a sports star. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of this sprawling narrative about them and just the web of people that they interact with and sleep with and their friends and stuff like that. Um, and follows them through their ups and downs, uh, through thick and thin. And it sort of ends with the man getting stabbed to death. <laughs> where... Hello? Hello, can you hear me? Hello? Hello? I can hear you. Hello? Oops, sorry, I muted you. You're, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> God damn it. Fuck you. I don't even know if I want to do this anymore. Uh, anyway, so yeah. The- do you know what I was doing like, simultaneously while you were describing the plot? <laughs> I was going to YouTube to find a clip of someone pronouncing <laughs> the star of Taipei Story's name, who's also a director, who I I thought was, in my genius intuitive reading of the name, I thought it was... Hu Xiaoxian, yeah. right? But when I watched one of his films, which I'll talk about later, oh. I don't think that's the correct pronunciation at all. But anyway. Hu Xiaoxian. But yes. Yeah. The guy is best known for um, City of Sadness and most recently The Assassin, a bunch of other really acclaimed Taiwanese films. Plays the yes. in this. And then uh, Sai Chen, who is a pop singer and Edward Yang's future, I think it was his first wife, uh, plays the female lead. Um, but I really enjoyed this movie a lot. It has this very sort of melancholy mood to it. 
Um, and I thought it had really gorgeous photography. Um, but it was really, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't, I guess I, I had some trouble like clicking with it uh, on a pure emotional level. And by the end I was like, ah, this guy's beats dab. I don't know if I care that much to be honest. To some extent it's, it had, it distances you from the characters. Cause he's, he's a very violent sort of brutish guy. Uh, in part. And they've also compared Yang to Antonioni quite a lot. Well, oh, yeah. I, I guess I could see that. Um, and, and it's sort of, he shoots architecture sort of similarly, and that um, there's a lot of great shots of the characters sort of dwarfed by the modernist architecture. Um, and I, I really enjoyed this film quite a bit. I thought it it made, I don't know, <laughs> Taipei both look, it's the city that's sort of like split between like a very traditional mindset Um as exemplified by uh, the main character, Wong, and uh, uh, the female character's father, who he's sort of, like, positioned symbolically near, and at one point they explicitly say, like, oh, he's, she's acting, or he's acting more and more like his father, who is, like, abusive towards um, the female character, and she's, like, a real fucking asshole. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I just thought it was complex in a really good way and sprawling in this way that really enveloped you in this this world that it creates um i really i really liked it a lot i thought who shashen was particularly good i thought i think the, so too uh, as the guy he's very good at being like emotionally repressed until he's they were both really good actually yeah i agree but yeah it's just it's just great evocation of just being adrift i think um would you agree with that yeah and, and I, I, sometimes I might be conflating this with one of Yang's other films because I saw them as part of a series, but mm. it also deals uh, with the conflicting sort of cultural influences from the bigger powers that surround Taiwan, from Japan, America, and China, yeah. Yeah. And it's it's interesting how um, sort of... Uh, Wang is also, like, sort of split symbolically between Japan and, and America as well because uh, part, part of the narrative has him scheming to get into business with his uh, brother-in-law who who runs an import-export business in America and lives there. And then his, also his ex-girlfriend who married a Japanese man and who he visited sort of without telling uh, his girlfriend in Japan. Um, and there's a really <laughs> bizarre scene that <laughs> I think really uh, captures the way America can be perceived outside of... <laughs> Uh, its own borders, which is there's this bit where um, one of the main characters is like, "Oh yes, my brother, my brother-in-law told me how he killed a man, <laughs> and that it's it's a it's you can kill anyone in America as long as they're acting suspicious on your property." And I was like, "Okay, yeah." <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was true to America. So there you go. And I and uh, I, I maybe Edward Yang is specifically uh, able to evoke that because he uh, lived for a while in the United States and went to college as well hmm. and died in america too he strayed onto someone's property and they shot him no he died of cancer <laughs> <laughs> uh yep so um yeah it, it really made me want to explore the taiwanese new wave more because i really haven't seen that many films that are in it or any at all even mm. so there you go it's a, it's a good starting point because you you get um, the collaboration between the two key figures. Yeah, for sure. And, and uh, Ho Shaoshen also co-wrote the script, we should say. Yes, he did. And the other co-writer... Chu Tai Win. Tian Win. She is a great writer who 
basically collaborated with Hu Xiaoxin on all his other films. Oh, oh yeah, she most did. Most of his other films. Wow. So she's an important voice in the new wave as well. So this is a collaboration with all three of them, which is great. Yeah, it'd be it's it'd be good not to dis to uh, discount her contributions, even if she didn't hasn't directed. I think she's also a novelist, possibly. Uh, yep, it seems like that. So, um, and I'll talk about this a bit later. But Hu Xiaoxian made a, his his first notable works in the Coming of Age trilogy that that she collaborated with him on. Well, I think she's she's continued to collaborate with him. Uh, up to his most recent film. Yeah, she's, she's. I think she's on most of his, if not all. I think, no, I think there's a, a period where they sort of took a break, but... No, it looks like... He hasn't, like, directed that many films recently, so... But it looks like um, The Flight of the Red Balloon, she did not write with him. But that's the one. He should do what Yang never got the chance to do, and make the Jackie Chan film. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that exact same thing. But, I mean, like, the problem is Jackie Chan is so, oh, you know, beyond his uh, his prime at this point, you know? No, no, but, like, it would it would have just been a drama, so he can still can he? be a dramatic actor. He doesn't need to jump about. Maybe he's lost that, maybe he's lost that spark. Uh, I'm going to, the, the police story uh, double set's coming out next week. Cool. So I'm finally going to watch those movies. Oh, he made a movie with Juliette Binoche in it. Who? Oh, how sh- Shaoshen. Oh, Shaoshen. I'm just going to mispronounce that all the time. Well, I- I've mispronounced it from the start. It just, my, when I first came, when I first, like, tried to work out the pronunciation and I hit upon that particular uh, sound, I was really proud of myself and it sounded right and it felt right, but it's not right. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> but anyway. Um, and as, as you may have noticed when I've just mentioned him uh, earlier in this discussion, I've said the name so fast <laughs> that you can't really scrutinize yeah. it too well. Probably intentionally. Um, um, but I actually planned to find a video of someone pronouncing his name before the podcast, but I completely didn't. forgot. So I apologize to our Taiwanese um, listeners. But so anyway, uh, Taipei story, definitely worth a watch. Definitely. Yeah, it's good stuff. Now, Hugh, what did you think about the next movie, which is called To Sleep With Anger, which I have watched, I watched, I have watched the first maybe five minutes of. Oh, okay, good. I watched the bit with the burning fruit. <laughs> um, okay, so To Sleep With Anger is a 1990 film. Uh, written and directed by Charles Burnett, who's uh, most famous for his debut film, Killer of Sheep, which I haven't seen. Neither. I've actually. seen some scenes of it. Um, I watched some of his other films that were available to me, mm-hmm. uh, such as My Brother's Wedding and this one, but I have not not seen Killer of Sheep. Killer of Sheep is, uh, it's always had kind of a hard time in release because of music rights, is my understanding. Right. Yeah. And I know my brother's wedding itself had a difficult production. As far I mean, a lot of his movies seem to have had difficult productions. That's sort of the perils of making being an independent uh, African American filmmaker. Yeah, and although like To Sleep with Anger wasn't a financial success once it was released, um, the production of it did have like a healthier budget than he was uh, previously afforded, um, and access to bigger name actors as well. Including, of course, Danny Glover. But anyway, to sleep with anger, so to, to go back to what the hell I'm talking about. 
um, the Charles Burnett film, and it tells the story of a family in Los Angeles. And uh, one day they get a strange visitor played by Danny Glover mm-hmm. called Harry. And um, he knew the, the family, or at least the parents of the family, when they lived in the South. Um, so the, the family moved north as part of the Great Migration. And, um, and he's, he's finally left the South himself and uh, turned up at their doorstep and they sort of welcomed him in. And, uh, and then the, the way he disrupts the families is the, the sort of central plot of the film, the central momentum. <laughs> just, uh, just to correct you a little bit, uh, mm. they actually move west because it takes place in LA. Well, that's kind of like a, 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 a metaphorical north of yeah, part of the sure. great migration, I guess. Isn't the south still sure. below? No, it's pretty much... Los Angeles, or is it just on the same plane? I think it's pretty much on the same plane. Okay, never mind. <laughs> I just want to undercut you. <laughs> anyway, continue. Yeah, okay, so I've got my, my coordinates wrong, but it still counts as the Great Migration. Sure, sure, sure. As I said, it kind of has like a fable-like feel, and in some ways you could say that the character of Harry represents this almost satanic figure yeah sort of slowly corroding the family unit but i think one of the film's strengths is its ambiguity and you could even make a convincing case that he's more of a a savior figure by the end Mm -hmm. without spoiling it too much um but the the narrative is, is just really richly textured with that history as i said especially the great migration and that divide between the the traditional values of um, southern african-american life and quote-unquote northern even if it's in the west um and the way that his presence in the family sort of uh emphasizes those divides and it's also uh encapsulated in the characters of the the two sons of the family mm-hmm. one of whom has sort of settled into the more modern uh aspirational lifestyle and is a good son to uh, the parents and the other one is is more directionless and harry is able to corrupt him to some degree Mm. Uh, and i really think this is an amazing film very powerful very assured and absolutely worth seeking out okay i'll have to watch it then do you have anything else you'd like to say about it before we move on to our next segment? No, I, I just recommend you should watch it because it's better not to talk too much about it. Okay, I'll watch it then. Also, I don't have anything else to say, which is handy. That's nice. Uh, anyway, so let's let's move on to the fun part, <laughs> shall we? The fun part, quote unquote. Holocaust. 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 White oppression. Holocaust. 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 White oppression. Captain Fantastic. White is beautiful. Captain Fantastic. White is beautiful is is a film that uh, Roberto Benigni made in 1997. You mean that guy is in Fulini's last film and also in uh, Down by Law? Is that who you mean? He is. He's in Down by Law, yes. Benigni is a, a Jewish bookshop owner. Well, Benigni is not Jewish. He is not, but in the film... He is. <laughs> yep. What is his character name? Guido. And uh, he's in Italy. Mm-hmm. In a small town in Italy. 
And uh, the first stretch of the film is his uh, budding romance with his real-life wife. Mm-hmm. Nicoletta Brasi. Who plays a character called Dora. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then he gets captured, or actually they all get captured by uh, Nazis, taken to a concentration camp. He gets killed. The end. Well, you're ignoring them. You're ignoring the most important part of this, the movie, Hugh. The fact that life is beautiful. No, no. He has a child that accompanies him to the concentration camp. They have a, a child together. She did not say. And he endeavors to make the const- life in the concentration camp more bearable by pretending that the concentra- concentration camp is a great playground for his child to explore. Yeah, and everyone's part of this game. Yes. Uh huh. Whatever success this film could achieve as a, a work of cinema, mm-hmm. I mean, not financial, but like in in terms of its quality, yeah, yeah, sure, is predicated on the uh, assumption that Roberto Benigni is charming. <laughs> I have to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna pause you real quick hmm. for an important breaking update. So, obviously, uh, this movie uh, that we're talking about right now is a huge smash success, and Benini sort of used the critical and the financial clout that he uh, accrued from making Life is Beautiful to make uh, his next film, which is an adaptation of Pinocchio, where he played Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. Okay. Everyone knows this. It was an, infam- an infamously a huge disaster. Yeah. But what I have just learned is that Roberto Benini is starring in another adaptation of Pinocchio. It's coming out this year in Italy. Really? Yes, where he plays, um, what's his name? Geppetto. So. Oh, God. There you go. Is he, is he making it or is he just in it? I think he's just in No, it's directed by Matteo Garone, who directed uh, Gamora, most famously. Oh, uh, okay. Interesting. So, that'll be great. So, Benigni hasn't made many films since. He did make... So, he made Pinocchio. He made a, a sort of similar film to this uh, about either Afghanistan or Iraq. Really? During the war on terror years. Yeah. And he, he goes to rescue his girlfriend from either Afghanistan or Iraq. Let me find out which one it is. Oh. The Tiger in the Snow. That's the one, yeah. Wow, that sounds terrible. Yeah, it does. It's a similar, I think it's a similar sort of thing. And he's doing the slapstick stuff while he's rescuing her and whatever. Oh, that sounds like a nightmare. Even just like the opening stretch of this film uh-huh. in which he's uh, courting this woman, I found that just difficult to get through because I, I didn't find any, any charm or interest in his performance. The character was just like really annoying to me. He kind of does the thing where he just like annoys a woman into loving him. Yeah. And just like the sequence where he like impersonates a speaker at a, at a school who is going to do like a racist lecture on why the Aryan race is the, the, the best race and everyone else is inferior. It's just a very, very poor taste. Yeah. And it's not that you couldn't tackle the same subject matter in a funny way. It's just the, the his particular type of humor in this context doesn't seem to like properly challenge that rhetoric. Um, but anyway, and then and then he gets taken away. Him, his son, and his father get taken away by the Nazis. His wife finds out, and she volunteers to join them. Uh-huh. 
And they go to the, the concentration camp. And then, as you said, he tries to keep his son in good spirits by pretending it's all an elaborate game and he has to keep playing along. Yeah, I don't, I don't see what's wrong about this so far. Uh, which apparently was based on something in Roberto Bernini's family. Yeah, but minus the aspect of him being Jewish, of course. Yes. Um, and then uh, eventually, like, this goes on for a while and it's a great deal of fun. And then... Uh, I, I specifically remember one cut where Roberto Benigni is like, I can't imagine it'll be that bad or something to that effect. It's been years and years since I've seen this movie, so I don't remember that long. Mm. It's like, what are they going to make us do? Like, lift heavy stuff? And it cuts to him, like, carrying this really heavy thing. It's supposed to be a yeah, joke about him. Yeah, it does that. Heavy, doing, like, slave flavor. <laughs> it's great stuff. Yeah, there's, like, a slapstick scene of him carrying a giant anvil about. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, then he gets... He's dressed up as a... He's dressed up as a woman, and he's running away from the guards, and then one of them shoots him. Um, but he's luckily managed to hide his son. So his son remains safe in, like, a little uh, container. Yeah. Until the end of the war, and uh, the Americans come through on a great big tank. And there's some joke about him promising his son a tank ride or something like that. What is yeah, that? the whole the whole premise of the game was that everyone was competing to win a tank. Yes, there you go, there the, you go. The fake game. So then at the end, his son comes out, and then there is a tank. And the American guy goes, hey, kid, come and ride it with me. So he sort of gets his wish, thanks to his dad. And then they ride off, they reunite with the mother, and, and then it just ends abruptly. I like to think that that kid grew up to be a Holocaust denier. <laughs> <laughs> or at least someone who, who like, Holocaust deniers be like, well, see, the kids weren't that bad. This kid didn't remember anything bad happening to them. I'd call this film tone deaf, but it had such a huge positive audience and critical response. Oh, yes. So that doesn't quite give the right impression, but it definitely feels tonally off to me. It does. That is true. It is, it's uh, never a good sign when the genre category that you're playing is feel-good movie about the Holocaust. Mm. So it essentially just feels horrendously reductive about the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, not to be too glib about it, but imagine if you like had been captured and you were in a concentration camp and you were like confronting your death in this horrible circumstance and Roberto Benigni was in the camp... <laughs> And you just had to deal with that as well. <laughs> yeah, I would uh, kill myself too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but also, imagine being a Holocaust survivor and have been watching this movie. I know, yeah. Apparently, it's based on an actual Holocaust survivor. Yeah, it's like a conflation of a story from his grandfather or something and another story. Called In the End I Beat Humor about Rubino, Romero, Solomini. Anyway, tell us about Captain Fantastic. Captain Fantastic uh, is a little movie uh, which stars Hugo Mortensen. Um, and the premise is thus. <laughs> <laughs> the movie opens uh, with sort of this um, series of shots and events uh, which depict this sort of mysterious family uh, living in the woods. 
who have Robinson Crusoe themselves up a bunch of uh, or what's the Swiss Family Robinson? That's what yeah. that was being referenced. Swiss Family Robinson Book of Henry. Yeah, themselves up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. a couple of uh, wooden houses and stuff. Um, and there are seven children and one Nico Mortensen. <laughs> uh, at first, when you're watching, you're not quite sure whether to if it is a uh, family or if he's some sort of deranged cult leader. Um, <laughs> and and eventually, what you eventually learn is that Vigo Mortensen is a dad, <laughs> and these are his children. Uh, and his wife, uh, who is not president of the camp, uh, has is in a mental institution for one reason or another. Um, his family sort of lives this alternative lifestyle where uh, <laughs> he um, makes them do arduous phys- physical activity and train themselves how to fight from a very young age. Um, and they're all, they're all, the family is all sort of quirky to one degree or another, though a lot of them are sort of like skipped over, especially the female <laughs> uh, members of it, um, for reasons that I... I assume have to do with the fact that there's seven of them in the movie. It's only so long. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank God. Uh, and so, uh, so they're moving down the woods. Um, they all seem very precocious and intelligent. Um, they're sort of allowed to curse and say whatever they want. And he sort of has developed this educational system which has them reading advanced books. Uh, just to, to give you an example of a scene which opens this... Um, Sort of demonstrates the tone this movie is working with, which is uh, it's it's not really a comedy. I'd say there are movies that there are sequences that uh, are supposed to be funny, uh, but on the whole, it seems to be going for something a little more uh, emotionally effective, uh, which is why maybe it, it received a higher critical praise than than some of the other, these other films of the same similar uh, indie independent uh, quirky family drama mold. Mm. Um. Where Viggo Mortensen is, uh, one of his, the film opens with his oldest son <laughs> stalking and murdering a deer. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, um, her, his two daughters are about to dissect the deer, not, I guess uh, dissect is the improper word, but, uh, butcher it for its meat and stuff. Um, and they don't know where the bone knife is, so, um... Viggo Mortensen, they, they're like, oh, you know, this other daughter has it. So Viggo Mortensen runs up to this treehouse where this daughter is living, this very Book of Henry-esque treehouse. Um, not in terms of, like, being a mechanical, like, Rube Goldberg machine, though, unfortunately. Okay. Um, but and she runs up, and the... Uh, <laughs> so uh, the apartment is decked with bones of all sorts and skins... And uh, it seems that she's created this sort of shrine of bones and skin. And there's a picture of Pol Pot on the wall. Right. Uh, <laughs> and she's in the middle of di- dissecting a squirrel. Uh, and uh, the movie does not want you to think that she is a buddy psychopath, which it seems like she obviously is. <laughs> um, but it seems to want to be like, oh, look at this quirky child, you know. Um, and there's a hilarious line where Viggo Morton says, says, Jesus, for some reason. And then the daughter's like, no, Pol Pot. Uh, which is <laughs> <laughs> great. Um, so the family sort of uh, comes together. Uh, <laughs> he um, 
they have this there's this great scene where they're sitting around the fire um, and Viggo Mortensen is quizzing them about their reading material and like I'm going to test you about this blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then after they finish eating they start playing music together uh, and the youngest son is a little bit of a rebellious streak because he's not the youngest son but a middle son how about that it's a little bit of a rebellious streak Instead of playing his assigned instrument, he just starts tapping erratically. And all the family joins together in this great improvisational communal experience. Okay. <laughs> so into this... And uh, how incandescent was your joy at that moment? <laughs> uh, it created a hole in the floorboards that I fell to my death. <laughs> That's how it gets. Okay. Um, cool. So uh, into this Edonic paradise uh, comes the unfortunate <laughs> news that Viggo Mortensen's wife, before we've even seen her, mind you, has committed suicide. <laughs> uh, so, um, and the movie chooses to symbolize his emotional anguish about this by having him stand bare chest under a waterfall. <laughs> uh, which, you know, it's just a great uh, visual shorthand for uh, a, a, a man experiencing a lot of emotions, you know. Hmm. Um, so he receives. Uh, so he receives this news, and then he uh, uh, looks in his will and discovers that uh, for her last rites, she wanted to. She was a Buddhist, apparently, to have her body cremated. Um, and she, he, he calls uh, her father. He's played by Franklin Gala, and he's like, "Your daughter wanted this to happen." Blah blah blah. Um, so I'm going to come get the body and Franklin goes like, no, if you come to wherever we are, you, I don't like your alternative lifestyle. I'm, 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 if you try to take my daughter and murder, I'm going to call the police. Um, so Vigo at first is like, well, I can't do this. I'm kind of, I have these kids kind of illegally. <laughs> <laughs> if the, if the police catch me, they're going to take the, take them away from me. Um, and, but eventually after, uh, his children sort of, uh, put some pressure on him, uh, he decides to take a cross country road trip to, <laughs> yes, <laughs> to go to, um, the funeral and liberate her body and burn it. And that's sort of the, the media of the film sort of happens, uh, as they cross, uh, it seems like they're moving in the Pacific Northwest. I believe the funeral takes place in, uh, New Mexico, but don't quote me on that because it could be wrong. I'm not looking at the plot details. Because, frankly, why would I? Um, and so that's the movie. Uh, it's fucking awful. <laughs> it's my <laughs> description may have made it seem. Um, Vigo, instead of seeing like a, a guy who uh, is like, you know, like a, a caring father, he just sort of sees a cult leader. You really expect his daughters to, to go to bed with him at any moment. <laughs> 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 and it's 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 just really torturous and, and uh, uh, almost impossible to sit through, um, <laughs> especially the scenes that are played for laughs, um, of which there are quite a few. Um, and uh, in conclusion, it made me hate the movie, uh, and I hated it, and it was bad, and I didn't feel anything. <laughs> so there you go. Um, Hearing you describe it, it sounds worse than even I imagined it would be. So. <laughs> Um, I, I'm just going to give you a couple of selections of this movie to give you some more um, more details about what it's to like, right? To increase my drive to watch it myself. Yeah, yeah. So let's see, let's see. Uh, there's a, there's a great like uh, strain of fat shaming in the movie where uh, they go to a bank to withdraw some money, and obviously, Viggo uh, Mortensen's kids are uh, uh, like uber mentions. 
essentially. And they go to this bank and they're just looking at, at, why is everyone so fat? And there's all these like bizarre shots of these overweight people in this bank. And you're like, what? why is this part of this movie? It's so strange. <laughs> um, and they talk a lot about organic food. And there's a scene where they go to a diner and they're like, no, this isn't real food. We gotta go. Um, and then he takes them out of there. Uh, to to give you an example of the movie's sense of humor, on the other hand, the uh, the the child that I spent uh, a copious amount of time describing the uh, psychopathic behavior of uh, is sort of assigned the role of the cute moppet, which is a very common feature, a very common feature in these movies. Mm. Uh, the cute moppet who says inappropriate things and in inopportune times. Such as there's a uh, part where Viggo Mortensen is describing uh, sex to her. And she keeps on asking him more questions. And it's like a seven-year-old kid asking stuff like, what does rape mean? And why would a man stick his penis into a woman's vagina? And it's great. It's so funny. There's this, there's a, a bit where uh, they celebrate Noam Chomsky Day. Should <laughs> <laughs> just let sit. But um, who is evoked uh, several times over the course of the movie, but... Uh, never is his, you know, theories about linguistics or politics explicated in any fashion or incorporated to the movie. And it really just <laughs> seems like a way to make Viggo Mortensen's character and probably the director himself seem intelligent. Uh, there is one part where they quote from his book, but it just seems like it could be assigned to anyone. Um, there's a sequence that I swear I was referencing, Love is Colder Than Death. <laughs> <laughs> Where Vigo Mortensen's wandering through a supermarket and it play it's the there's like this weird choral music on the uh loudspeakers. Hmm. Um, and also they're stealing from the supermarket, so maybe an intentional reference. So it has one of those annoying uh Indians where you're like, oh it's like the bad guys weren't so bad after all, sort of. But like Unicorn Sword, actually, there's never like a scene where the bad guys are convinced of the rightness of the good guy of uh, Vigo Mortensen's way. So um, they eventually go to the funeral, and Viggo Mortensen is forced to confront the fact that maybe he's a terrible father, <laughs> which he is. Mm -hmm. But which is sort of, uh, the movie doesn't commit to it all, because his kids are basically like super geniuses and have like the physique of athletes. So it's kind of hard to be like, oh yes, he's such a bad father, but obviously his methods are working spectacularly, right? Yeah. The movie is so obviously on his side that never for a second does it, is it, is it, does it convince you that uh, he has changed his ways in any, any way, or that he needs to change his ways, even. Um, <laughs> but I will admit that it did make me uh, laugh myself almost to the point of tears uh, for the ending sequence, mm -hmm. where um, after Viggo Mortensen has uh, realized the error of his ways, he's had his come-to-Jesus moment, uh, where he... <laughs> He shaves his beard. Ah, do, you, do you get the symbolism of him turning over a new leaf? <laughs> um, and, and his family has seemingly abandoned him to live with Frank Langella. And he has uh, given them permission to do so because they, he, you know, Frank Langella would offer him, him, them a more stable life. Yeah. And he's driving. Oh, and I, ha I have completely forgot to mention that the way that they uh, <laughs> cross the country is in a, a converted, what seems to be a school bus. <laughs> um, so uh, Viggo Mortensen is driving to parts unknown. His family haven't been taken from him. His wife, uh, his final wishes left unfulfilled. Um, when suddenly it, he hears a banging and what? It's his children. They've rejoined him. And they're like, let's go liberate mom. So they take their mom's body. They dig it up. 
uh, quite a weekly. They never explain how he gets out of this, too. <laughs> um, and uh, they take it to some beach. And <laughs> they start burning the body, right? <laughs> On the beach. <laughs> and uh, one of the kids starts playing some music. Just like, it was mom's favorite song. And so uh, what did they break into, Hugh, in an improvised sort of like folk rock version of... Uh, what, what song do you think it is that accompanies this this woman to her uh, fiery... Um, final resting place babies on fire <laughs> no it is a song that was uh written by the great musician axel rose <laughs> really <laughs> yes it is the song sweet child of mine listener <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> did i laugh i laughed i laughed very hard uh, so it's bad. Don't watch it. <laughs> but I do. I do think the movie is worth watching for that one scene because it's so funny. But you need to watch the whole film yeah. to get the effect. To get the effect, unfortunately, you can't just like dip in because, and because you, you you hate the movie so much, and you're like, okay, it's going to build up to this shitty emotional climax or whatever, and it's a sweet child of mine. <laughs> it's very funny. Oh, and I guess I should say the movie ends with him. Like, rejoining society. But he's still separated from it. It's terrible. Don't watch it. This got... So this got mostly positive reviews. It did. Right. Um, and in, in, apparently, according to Wikipedia, a 10-minute standing ovation when it was shown at Cannes. So well, but it wasn't, it wasn't in competitions. at the En Certain Rigot section. But it was shown. Yes. All right, so I guess we were both quite successful in our mission. <laughs> so how, how how many stars would you give uh, uh, Life is Beautiful? How many, I'm sorry, how many points of a star? <laughs> the the fewest points of a star that our rating system accommodates. Zero points of a star. Mm-hmm. And I would give the same rating to Get the Fantastic. <sighs> okay, so shall we move on to uh, bonus features? Let's never do this again. Bonus features. I watched uh, Three Amigos, which is which is the Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, Martin Short ensemble comedy. Why did you just start decide to watch that? Uh, it's one of my favorite films as, as a kid. I was, I was obsessed with it. It's like a foundational uh, column in my cathedral of humor. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. You know, one of those formative comedy films that seemed to really speak to me as a kid. And did it uh, live up to that uh, high expectation? I mean, I don't, it can't live up to what I thought of it as a kid. There's no yeah. way it's possible. I'm glad it's still did like it enjoyable, some charm, and watchable. Yeah, it still has some charm. Okay, that's good. So that's basically all I want to say about it. But the other funny thing about it is it was written by Steve Martin, Lorne Michaels of uh, SNL. Fame and Randy Newman, which is funny. The Music Man. Yes, Randy Newman, the Music Man. So he wrote the comedy music for the film. Those comedy songs in the film, but he also was one of the writers on the screenplay. Weird, which is quite funny. I've never seen it. A lot of those things, like when you go back and watch these comedy films, uh, they're sort of not as joke dense as you'd like them to be from like a modern perspective. Sure, but it's still enjoyable. 
Uh, I watched Pretty Woman for the first time. And it's, yeah, it's all right. It's all right. Okay. That's about all I'll, all I'll say about it. I'll go back in, into it when, when I talk about another film. Oh, but yeah. Wow. It was, yeah, it, was, it was enjoyable enough. It's not great. Okay. But it's, it's okay. I watched Suspiria, which is a film I've been meaning to watch for a long time. What do you think that? Finally. Uh, it's very good. Yeah. Very good. Very, very, like, it's, it's sort of a horror film uh, suited to my sensibilities. Which is one that's not that scary. It's not sadistic or anything. Is what I'm that's funny because a lot of people accuse it of being sadistic. Actually, it doesn't feel that way to me. No, me neither. Compared to a lot of other things, me neither. I mean, at the start, it feels like it maybe is going to be that way because there's like the most gruesome part is like in the first act. Yeah, I I often think that people watch the beginning and that's the only part of the movie that they really yeah seem to respond to. At least people who don't like it. But I mean, the way that's done, and what I'm referring to is is a, a young woman is murdered who's from this dance academy yeah um and there's this shot of the knife entering the heart itself yeah which is but that's so like so ludicrous that it it takes on a form of abstract beauty or nonsense or trash the whole film has that sort of uh feeling of irreality yeah it's hard to it's hard to get like a visceral feeling of brutality from that yeah for sure and especially in context with the rest of the film that doesn't have that level of violence, like every second or anything like that. No. It never repeats anything as gruesome, in fact. I Actually, the part that makes me feel the most uncomfortable is when the uh, film gets all wrapped up in the, uh, what do you call it, um, barbed wire. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, although they don't show actual much damage on his skin. No, but, you can but just, just the idea of it is enough to... Yeah. And the way it's shot, too, it leaves a lot to the imagination, which is almost worse, honestly. Um, but it just has this this great atmosphere, the combination of the amazing visuals and the sets and the production design, mm-hmm. with this very iconic score. Uh, it's just pure enjoyment mm-hmm. for me. Okay. Um, so I'm I'm quite keen to see his other films like Deep Red and stuff. Deep Red is is another excellent movie. Uh, then I finally watched Smiles of a Summer Night, which you've talked about previously on this very podcast. Um, which is one of Bergman's uh, quote-unquote lighter efforts. Yeah. Uh, I didn't like it as much as some of the other Bergman films I, I've watched, uh, although I liked it a lot, and I, and I might uh, like it more if, once I revisit it, because I think it's something that's easily rewatchable. It's very charming and funny. Uh, I watched uh, the, <laughs> the Perfect Date. <laughs> About the same level, I think. Which is a Netflix romantic comedy... Um, that seems to be created to capture the momentum from To All the Boys I've Loved Before. So it includes the love interest from that, the male love interest from that film, as is the protagonist of this. He was presumably being sucked up into uh, the Netflix stable of actors. Yes, he is. He's actually in a bunch of these, I think. That they've... <laughs> what a hellish existence. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the premise of this is that uh, the, the the romantic interest guy, I forgot his name, whatever, Bob, let's call him Bob. <laughs> Bobby Bobber. <laughs> he, um, he agrees to go on a date with someone, some rich dude's cousin, mm-hmm. um, and accompany her to the prom or something in exchange for cash. Mm. And then sort of based on this experience, he, he, he becomes friends with, the the woman he takes on the date and then uh sort of based on what happens there he decides to start like a an app 
where women can hire him to be the perfect date. He becomes a gigolo. Yes, essentially. <laughs> Sounds terrible. Noah, his name is Noah Centineo. Yes, yes, that's him. He's trying to win win over his dream girl, who is um, Veronica from uh, Riverdale. Oh, um, yes. Veronica, I don't, I don't know what yes, her name is. Yes, let's call her Veronica. Apparently sure, they're making all, to all the boys I've loved before, too. So I hope they are. They are making that right now. Good, 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 <laughs> good, good, good. good. Although well, you can't really do that because you don't want to see what happens with the relationship. You don't want to necessarily see the relationship like deteriorate. Or... <laughs> so, so bad, 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 maybe. Where, where can you go from there? Dude, anyway, I don't the know. The perfect date. So his dream girl is Veronica and she's like a rich snob and he's more working class. So it's that sort of pretty in pink thing. You know how successfully uh, romantic comedies deal with class, such as Pretty Woman? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> the perfect day. They, I mean, they deal with, like, in the John Hughes way, they deal with them, I guess. So not at all? <laughs> Poorly? Poorly. But they, they sort of gesture towards it, saying something meaningful about rich people being snobbish. So the perfect day is, like, it's fine enough, like, it's watchable enough for what it is. But the problem is that this style of, romantic comedy is feeling increase, increasingly out of step with modern society. So, you know, in the 90s when there was some consciousness towards better representation. Sure. But not enough to actually change that much. So kind of not that dissimilar from now. Yeah. But, like, there was, like... So in a lot of romantic comedies in the 90s, they will want to, say, not just have a cast that's all white and all straight. Yeah, they want to have, like, a token African-American or gay person. Yeah, so they want to fill some... But they'll fill only the ancillary parts. It'll never be part of the main story. So the, the common trope was that one of the protagonists of the, the straight white couple at the centre of the film, mm-hmm. one of the protagonists will have a friend... Yeah, who f- fulfills some minority... Fulfill, yeah, fulfills some requirement to be non-white and straight um and this 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 goes for a, a two for one so <laughs> um the, uh, the a, two, a two for we call it in the business yeah so in this case the the gay best friend of the protagonist is not white as well so mm. perfect mm. nailed it anyway so that that just like was kind of frustrating yeah well it just surprised me if we made a comedy seem like a pretty regressive in terms of their politics genre in general and in contrast to to all the boys I've loved before, which at least had a person of colour as the central protagonist. Sure. But the, the other trope that is so encoded in the genre, just comes up constantly, is the, the one of the characters and usually the main focus of the film, because usually it's focusing more on one of the leads than it is on the other. Sure, sure, sure. In this case, that dude from the other film. Noah Centennial. Um, he has to be from a single parent family. Very often, single father. And that's the same in To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Weird. And the same in this one. And uh, in To All the Boys I've Loved Before, the, the missing mother is dead. Wow. In this one, the missing mother left the family. And, this, and that, that goes all the way back to um, Pretty in Pink again. With, uh, what's his name? Harry Dean Stanton. Harry Dean Stanton is in... Pretty in Pink, yeah. He's Molly Ringwald's, Ringwald's deadbeat dad. And uh, in this case, there's a deadbeat dad as well. Moved on to Made in Manhattan, uh-huh. 
which is is a film made nine years after Pretty Woman, but is essentially not not nine years, uh, twelve years after Pretty Woman, mm-hmm. but is essentially a version of the same film except that the the female love interest is a maid instead of a prostitute. But the <laughs> sounds great. The idea of being rescued from a lo- low socioeconomic status by this rich white guy sounds great is is kind of the same and even though they try and deal with like class consciousness and try and affirm like uh progressive views about class differences and uh throw some scorn on some rich people in the film Uh essentially the the fairy tale is that you'll be rescued by (laughs) a rich white person and you won't have to live your shitty life anymore so and in fact made in manhattan even feels a little bit more aggressive than pretty woman (laughs) somehow it, it, it felt a lot flatter than Pretty Woman. I guess there was, like, some uh, demonstrable chemistry between uh, Julie Roberts and Richard Gere. Yeah. But there's certainly none between Jennifer Lopez and uh, Ray Fiennes. Ray Fiennes? What? Yeah. <laughs> as a, no, and, and get this as well. He's a Republican. <laughs> but she teaches him to be more progressive. Sounds great. But he's still a Republican. Okay. Um, but yeah, Ray Fiennes is pretty terrible. And it looks like he did not want to be there. And Gen- But Jennifer Lopez is, is pretty good. Then I rewatched uh, Wheels on Meals, uh-huh. which is a Jackie Chan film directed by Samuel Hung, also featuring Samuel Hung, mm. as well as Yan Bio, mm. that you'll be familiar with from Project A. Plus? And... It, this is a lot of fun. It's for some reason set in Spain and they have like a meal cart. Uh-huh. Highly recommended. I watched 10 Things I Hate About You. Um, and uh, it's a version of Taming of the Shrew with uh, Heath Ledger in it. This was his big breakout role. Um, and uh, so it's Heath Ledger and Julia Stiles. Uh, they're both actually pretty good in this film, I think. Um, I'm, I was never particularly into Heath Ledger as an actor. But, I mean, you, you can, if you look at the, his first role or his first major role here, you can see that he had star power and that he was uh, meant for better things. Anyways, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's quite enjoyable. Then I watched Crime Story, which is another Jackie Chan. And it's sort of like a more serious version of Police Story. But it's actually a really solid, solid good time. Solid good time. And then, peculiarly enough, on this same streaming service, mm-hmm. which is not a, like a interesting streaming service, uh, it's just basically a, a low-grade Netflix rival in Australia called Stan. Uh-huh. So there's not much good on it. I signed up for it, I think, to watch the film music and lyrics originally, um, and I, it also had all the Marvel films as well. So that was part of the reason. Mm. But anyway, I was very surprised to see. <laughs> Just like a day before it was due to expire, that there were two Hu Shen films on there. <laughs> and these films are really hard to find. They're not on like the Criterion and stuff. So no, they're not. They were A Time to Live and A Time to Die and Dust in the Wind, which is the last two thirds of his coming of age trilogy, mm. uh, one of his early successes. And I was worried that I was missing the first part of this trilogy, but it's more of one of those thematic trilogy things. Um, So A Time to Live and A Time to Die was my first exposure to his actual films outside of Taipei's story. 
mm. which he only co-wrote and appeared in. Um, and I was surprised, actually, how similar he is to Edward Yang in his style. Because this film mirrors uh, Brighter Summer Day quite a lot. Brighter Summer Day was based on Edward Yang's childhood to an extent, as well as stories he heard about a crime mm-hmm. that was committed by a youth when he was young. So that's integrated into there. And, and obviously there's the greater historical context in Taiwan at the time. And it's the same The same is true here, and especially focusing on um, wayward youth characters who sort of get involved in petty crime and stuff. But it's a really beautifully made film, and it has surprising surprising moments of dark humor mm. especially the ending highly recommended i think it's a really great film to check out and then i watched dust in the wind which was the film he made after that the last film in this thematic trilogy and it's about two lovers who are sort of torn apart by the economic realities of the time and such and uh this is a film that's, that's harder to like on the surface, but in kind of an interesting way. Uh, again, it sort of has that distancing thing that you that we saw in Taipei Story with the protagonists. It, it, that sort of makes the film kind of daring in, in its way, I think, because it's it it doesn't it doesn't give you any emotional investment or attempt to make these characters much more likable or anything like that. Mm. Um, I think it intent, intentionally distances you from them, and it's quite a dark film and a pessimistic film, but. So definitely uh, not as easy to like as A Time to Live and A Time to Die, but I would say worth watching as well. But I'm really interested to see Sea of Sadness in particular. Uh, and finally, I already mentioned this, but I watched My Brother's Wedding, which was uh, Charles Burnett's second film, which was notoriously released, at least to critics or an initial screening before he'd even finished editing it. Mm-hmm. And it's a similarly low-budget film to Killer of Sheep, although it had a larger budget, but... You can clearly see that he didn't have that that many resources to work with. Most of the actors seem to be non-professional in a way that you can very much tell. Um, Although there are still some good performances, there are some very noticeably amateurish performances. Mm -hmm. It's quite a shaggy film, and it feels like there wasn't enough coverage in some scenes and stuff, so there's kind of some abrupt abrupt scene endings and bits and pieces. It's kind of a bit messy. He only recently completed a proper edit of it, Wow. And, uh, but it's still, I, I definitely recommend it still watching it. And especially the way it mirrors the, the central sort of themes of to sleep with anger. Because again, we've got these two brothers, one of whom is more directionless, although in a different kind of way. And the other one is, is uh, like a lawyer and upwardly mobile aspirations with a rich family that he's marrying into and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And the tension's there. Uh, but it has some beautiful moments and uh, I like the ending as well. That's it. That's all I watched. Your turn. Okay, so I watched Claire Denis' highly anticipated film, uh, High Life. And it sounds like you weren't entirely positive. It's a little, I don't know, it, it feels a little pat in a way. It doesn't, it doesn't really do it for me, I have to admit. Uh, it wasn't nearly as abstract as I would have liked, and it was a little too literal-minded. And it wasn't quite as sci-fi or as art film. It was sort of like stuck between those two impulses and it just feels sort of mutated and uh, I just didn't, uh, I don't know, I thought it was, it was, it was, okay. It was okay. There's some good sequences, but as a as a film, as an overall unit, I uh, was not particularly impressed by it. 
that'd be awesome. Which is a real shame because I, uh, I quite like um, Claire Denis in general. But you have to watch it and then uh, rebut me. I do want to watch it regardless. Um, I watched Fallen Angels, mm-hmm. uh, the Wong Kar Wai movie, which I, uh, I think is both a inferior film to. Chucky Express, but there are moments in it that I like way more than I like anything in Chucky Express. So right. I think it's great. Um, but I think one of the stories is slightly annoying until it turns really poignant and strange. Um, the other one is just pure uh, Wong Kar Wai romantic sort of inflected stuff and it's really great. So It's good stuff. You should definitely watch it. Surprised that you haven't. Uh, I watched this documentary called Tarnation. Which is sort of a kind of found footage ish movie. Um, before found footage was a film, where this uh, guy named Jonathan Chaway, who is a actor in New York City, um, edited together sort of the abuse that was suffered by her mother, uh, and sort of documented his life story and her life story through these uh, edited together home movies. Um, it's very disturbing, um, but kind of get the sense at points that he's exploiting his poor mom, which Mm -hmm. sort of put me off it a little bit, but it has some really memorable and disturbing sequences, and it's really sad. So that's Tarnation. Maybe morally questionable. Okay. (laughs) Um, Speaking of which. Speaking of which, yes, Hollywood Shuffle, uh, which is a Robert Townsend uh, sketch movie about how fucking terrible it is to be uh, an African-American actor in Hollywood. Um, and, which is, uh, funny at times, and very scathing at others, and then uh, really homophobic at, at, at certain other points. Um, so sort of a mixed bag there, too. Yeah, I thought it was okay until it sucked. And then it wasn't that good. But it was okay. <laughs> it was okay. That should be your trademark phrase. It was okay until it sucked, and then it wasn't so good. <laughs> Okay. I'll make that the quote on the cover of my website, the front page. Um, the mo- mo- the comedy in the movie is a little like sketch humory, which means there are some parts that are pretty funny, and then some parts that are just like grown worthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it feels like it was like really lengthened by these like movie parodies, which are somewhat insufferable. <laughs> and it may have been a bit of a stronger film if it didn't include them or shorten them down by a lot. Um, but it did make me interested in seeing some of other Robert Townsend's movies. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was okay. And then I watched, just last night, I watched Long Day's Journey Into Night. Uh, sort of a hotly anticipated film by Chinese director Bygone, um, which I thought was only okay. And, honestly, I thought it was pretty boring, too. <laughs> but it had some really striking moments. I feel like it's the kind of movie that you would love. But maybe not. Uh, it was very sort of uh, indebted to the work of Andre Tartofsky. <laughs> uh, there's one shot that is pretty much just a whiff of the final shot of Stalker, where the glass is like moving across the table. Mm. When it is also notable for having a uh, almost an hour long tracking shot, <laughs> where the main character goes to a movie theater and puts on a pair of 3D glasses, at which point you, the audience, put on your 3D glasses. Movie really? Roughly shifts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Did not know that. Yeah, well, now you do. 
I mean, it's not like something that's like a spoil or anything because, you know, you're handing 3D glasses at the beginning. So, I guess the fact that it's like a hour and a half long tracking shot. But uh, honestly, it felt a little too, like, just seemed kind of juvenile overall to me. But it has some really striking moments. All right. And that's it.